This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Department is backing proposed legislation meant to make it easier for contracting officers to get their hands on companies' internal pricing documents. Both the Pentagon and its inspector general say the changes are needed to head off price gouging especially when it comes to small quantities of spare parts. The urging comes as a new IG report raises another round of allegations of excess profits by Transdime, one of the military's biggest spare parts suppliers. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has the details. OIG officials are quick to point out that the problems associated with contracting officers not always being able to determine fair and reasonable prices aren't limited to Transdime. But that company may be the poster child for the sorts of issues DOD, the IG, and some members of Congress are concerned about. The latest audit found the company's business model is to acquire companies who are the only supplier for a particular military part, and DOD tends to buy those parts in such small quantities that they fall below the legal threshold that requires companies to turn over cost and pricing data when asked. In the most recent report, released in December, auditors looked at a sample of 107 parts DOD buys from Transdime. They found the company earned excessive profits on 105 of them. Teresa Hull, a deputy inspector general in the OIG's office, told the House Oversight Committee that's because in a sole source environment, contracting officers have no other options, especially without data on what the parts actually cost to make. The department is pursuing reverse engineering. That is an option. Um, Also, again, the Strategic Supplier Alliance, where an original equipment manufacturer would potentially cancel their licensing agreement with Transdime and produce those parts for the department directly. Um, But again, sole source parts by their nature, without competitive market forces, are the systemic issue that that our um, report highlights. And without um, reform, without some legislation, where a contracting officer can receive the information that they need to be able to make a well-informed negotiation with a contractor, you're going to continue to see these uh, results time and time again. Last year, the Defense Department proposed two legislative changes designed to make it easier for contracting officers to demand cost and pricing data when they truly need it to ensure fair prices. Neither one of them made it into the 2021 Defense Authorization Bill. John Tanaglia, the Principal Director in the Office of Defense Pricing and Contracting, says the Pentagon is preparing another round of proposals for Congress. He says even getting that cost and pricing data, though, won't be a silver bullet if a company is DOD's sole supplier and refuses to yield on price. In my view, there are two overarching issues here. The first, changes needed for contracting officers to obtain the data to analyze and negotiate fair and reasonable prices. The second, though, relates to the business model that the IG's report describes and whether the law should provide a check against the government paying higher prices for contractors to cover their expenses to acquire companies in the supply chain, particularly where the business model precludes effective competition. If unchecked, these expenses will continue to be embedded in contract prices that taxpayers pay for the products that the warfighter must have to perform the mission. The price we pay matters. Because the more we pay, the less combat capability we can acquire for a ready force. The latest audit estimated Transdime earned nearly $21 million in excess profits on those 105 parts and recommended that DOD pursue refunds. The department did the same thing in response to a prior OIG report on Transdime and secured a $16.1 million reimbursement. The company hasn't agreed to do that this time, though, saying only that it'll evaluate DOD's requests as they come in. 
Testifying at the same hearing, company officials took serious issue with the IG's conclusions and methodology. Among other objections, the IG's definition of excess profit, 15% or more, is completely arbitrary, says Kevin Stein, Transdime CEO. We see significant accounting and legal errors in this IG report. Um, We look forward to sitting down directly with the DOD. If we find that Transdime made a mistake in any of our contracting, uh, we will gladly pay money back. Um, But what we must do is agree to the facts. The facts are that we lost money on nine of the contracts. We only made 37% average on this entire IG audited parts. And we now know definitively that we gave the DOD and the American Warfighter a 25% discount to commercial prices. I don't understand why we would pay back of $21 million when, as we've illustrated, there are so many, it's rife with error. Transdime also argues the IG's conclusions are based on outdated information, since all the transactions it looked at were from 2019 and earlier. That was before the last time the company was criticized in another IG report and congressional hearing for the same practices. Under current law, contracting officers can ask companies to voluntarily turn over uncertified cost and pricing data for the kinds of small-quantity commercial parts at issue in this audit, but companies are free to say no, and Transdime almost always declines. In the cases the IG looked at, contracting officers asked for cost data on 26 parts. The company agreed to provide it for only two of them. On that point, the company is not budging. Nicholas Howley is the company's founder and executive chairman. He argues the cost data isn't relevant. The preferred way of doing price analysis here in the FAR is it gives a preferred way of doing it. And the preferred way is to compare it to price data, comparable commercial price data. We submitted the commercial price data and the commercial justification for every product. And in total, the uh, government is buying at a 25% discount to the commercial price. Not the commercial price on some price list, but the commercial price that commercial customers are paying. And that so is the preferred method of doing this as defined in the regulation, not cost analysis. The regulations that govern this have a specific methodology by which you determine reasonableness of price. And commercial pricing okay. is a... Okay. preferred method. DOD officials say that's true, but there are some niche cases where commercial prices paid aren't a reliable indicator that the government's getting a fair and reasonable price. Under current law, contracting officers generally have to treat a part as commercial if any other government official has ever made a commercial item determination for the same part at any time in the past. One of DOD's proposals would eliminate that presumption. Again, John Tanaglia. I agree where the, where the part is exactly the same as that is sold in the commercial marketplace, uh, then we have confidence that the fairness of the price, but let's say the airline paid for that exact same part, would be a fair price. Where we run into difficulties is, is when we look at these items that are not the same, uh, they're somewhat comparable, but they're more uh, what we call of a type, of a commercial of a type. You can't go out and see that exact same uh, product uh, and, and understand what the price uh, of it is when it's subjected to competitive market forces. What we really need is a policy that will give our contracting officers a means to establish fair and reasonable pricing when the when some of the TNA exceptions are in play. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, 
And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us, um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Looking to expand or move your company? Ohio has the talent you need to scale for growth. Ohio's central location, reliable infrastructure, and top-ranked business climate are here to help you succeed. Get to business. Visit successinohio.com today. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.